0: Headline news, oh my God, we got a jobs report here in the Wall Street Journal, 528,000 jobs at its economy. Welcome to the green room here at Disrupt TV where we talk about the most interesting things. We are joined here with some fun guests today. Uh, I'm Ray, we've got Bob and of course Elle here. So who are our guests? We're gonna go in reverse order. So Jeff, where are calling in from and what are we gonna talk about today? Oh, real quick and if everyone unmutes we'll be good. Yeah, it
1: works better that way. Sorry, I'm uh, yeah calling in from St. George, Utah, and we're here to talk about helping people unlock their potential and create their dream life in the modern world.
2: All right, very, very cool. So,
0: Brad, where are you calling in from?
2: I'm in the Spanish Pyrenees, and today I'm going to be talking about what's happening in, in B2B SaaS, what's happening uh, in markets for startups, and, and what founders should be doing to manage all of that.
0: Tell talk you later about that. All right, cool. Well, hey, I'll take it back to you, Elle. Let's go.
3: All right, three, two, one. Welcome, thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show, send us your questions uh, using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a world of digital giants. Ray's a regular television, business, and technology news contributor for Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. He's also a global sought-after keynote speaker. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWAG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV.
0: Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Asher, who's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational, insightful tweets, and when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses such as the ones on this show on ZDNet. But guess what? It's not about us. It's about the amazing guests we have, and who do we have to start today, Bala? Ray, it's a privilege
3: for us to have Brad Van Leeuwen, the co-founder and COO of Cloudera, a London-based leading platform that combines management tools for teams with payments platform to help companies take control of the software they use to run their businesses. Today, Cloudera operates in the US, UK, and 28 other countries. It holds the world's largest and fastest growing data set about purchasing renewals, churn, and usage of cloud software. Prior to Cloudera, Brad was vice president of partnerships at Rails R, the world's leading vast unicorn backed by Visa, where he was responsible for banking infrastructure globally and companies go to market. His uh, first foray into building technology companies, Ray, was in high school, where oh, in wow. his late, when in the late 90s he built what was at the time the second largest esports business in the world. Uh, you can follow Brad on Twitter at Brad Van L. V-R-A-D-V-A-N-L. Welcome Brad to Disrupt TV.
2: Thank you very much.
3: That's awesome. In, my, in high school, all I was doing was playing basketball and trying to get decent grades. You start a second largest company in the world. That's awesome. <laughs> let's, let's, start, let's
0: start there. What was the eSports company and what the heck? The, tell us more about that.
2: It's, well, so I was, I was in high school and turned out I liked doing a few things. I liked playing video games and I liked drinking beer and I wasn't old enough to do any of those things I had a buddy who was a couple of years older in university and so on a Friday night we used to carry like the big old boxy CRT monitors uh, and you know the the matching tower box computer to one of the physics labs where they actually had networking equipment which was cost a fortune at the time and we used to play video games against each other he'd buy the the beer and I'd buy the pizza and this this kind of caught on and we figured out that a lot of other people like doing this. And fast forward a few years later, we would have five thousand people in a sports wow. stadium playing like Quake and Counter Strike against each yeah. other. Wow. It was nuts. Like the That's FM awesome. radio station used to do like the top forty countdown live from the live from the stadium.
3: That's amazing. That's amazing.
0: Well, from esports to financial services and to SaaS management. Think about this. I mean, this is a crazy time to build a startup. I mean, think about it. There's gloom and doom. We're talking about a recession, I don't know, full employment recession. And, but there's a lot of capital out there and the technologies are getting great. I mean, startups like myself, like we can actually build something at enterprise scale that other people haven't been able to do. So what are you seeing for startups? What are the challenges that they're facing that are very different than it was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, even five years ago?
2: I think this is this is clearly the most challenging time that that startups and founders have seen since 2008 or maybe even 2001, right? Like it, on one hand, you've got the venture funds pulling back, you've got public market valuations falling, and you've got companies that the buyers of your product, um, you know, paying more attention to costs than ever. But on the other hand, it's just a huge opportunity, right? You have venture funds sitting on more dry powder than they've ever had and so the question is how do you build a, how can you build a business that can attract that type of capital and it requires different skills than perhaps it, it needed 12 months ago when tiger global would invest at 100 times revenue in anything that moved right it's about build actually getting back to the fundamentals and and building a real business but also still growing really really fast
3: yeah you've talked about fundamental sustainable revenue growth importance of efficiency uh, and process early on in your company and organization, and of course, the importance of team and talent. At the end of the day, the, the people is, is, is perhaps the most important part of the equation. Can you kind of level set the SaaS market for our audience? Uh, talk about you know VC climate, maybe growth projections in terms of software as a service earnings, and the fact that deals are still happening. You know, if, with the right companies.
2: Well, totally, I think so. What we've seen, particularly. I would say in the last four or five months, the markets diverge, right? So mm-hmm. on one hand, SaaS companies are growing faster than ever. Atlassian came out today in their, their earnings call. They beat earnings, revised up, right? And they came out and said they're not seeing any any slowdown, right? So they're growing faster than ever. In our data, I can tell you, we've been operating for four years um, and what we do is we run an index of our of all our customers, right? So if you spend more on software this month than you spent last month, you get a score of two hundred. If you spend materially less, you get a score of zero. We run that average across every one of our customers across thirty countries. There has never been never been a month in the history of of Clodara where compa- uh, where the index has been below one hundred. Meaning there's never been a month where on average companies have reduced their spend, wow. right? Wow. So you know the the markets for B two B software are super healthy. Gartner came out uh, six weeks ago, I, I think, and said that they're forecasting uh, an extra twenty percent on cloud spending by business this year, despite what's happening in the market. All I, think right, so... they, I
3: think their projection was a hundred billion more spent in twenty three versus twenty two present year of that four point three trillion dollars total spend. So software. I think 22% uh, year-over-year growth, if I'm not mistaken. And the numbers are
2: stunning. Totally, right? So software companies are super, super healthy, right? Markets are way bigger than anyone thought. You've got Datadog nearly doubling their revenue each year at $2 billion of ARR, right? Markets are great. On the other hand, actual public markets are not so great. I think Bessemer runs a cloud index that uh, from the peak in, in November is down 50%. Multiples are collapsing even more because those those companies are still are still growing super super fast and so I think it it's really hard for companies and founders and CEOs to think about what this means for the way they have to run their business that because the signals they're getting from different places are are really different. Those collapsing public markets are hurting venture funds right they're they're scared they're thinking about how they have to triage their portfolio, where their portfolio companies are going to get. The next round from, and what what happens if it's a down round and so there's you have to fight lots of fight on lots of different fronts, which you always have to do as a founder, but it's it's extra tough right now
0: yeah, no, this is a tough market uh, on many routes, uh, but we're also seeing a very, very exciting market as you've mentioned as well, so um you know the question is most companies are in the SaaS world, right? They're managing all these different SaaS contracts, they're dealing with all these different platforms, right? And you know, the biggest headache is trying to figure out how all these subscriptions come together for some folks. Talk a little bit more about that, right? And, and really the genesis of like why it's important to have a subscription you know, cloud platform or one platform that kind of puts everything together. I've heard you talk about this in some you know, videos and some keynotes and speeches, um, but it'd be
2: great to hear from you. Yeah, so you think about what a, what a most professional businesses are these days, right? They're people and those people either talk to other people or sit at their computer and press buttons, right? And they press buttons on, on software and companies, of course, they have HR systems. They've got bamboo HR or, or whatever that is to, to run their people. They have nothing to run their, their software and software is literally how their business operates. You know, I think like a lot of things where... Where Clodara came from, or like a lot of startups, was based on experiences myself and, and my co-founder had. So for me, I was at, at Railsa. And when we were six people and, and managing software meant passing my Amex around the table, it worked really well. By the time that we were 56, 106, 206 people and beyond and still doing the same thing, it didn't work. And that's not just because, well, it was a lot of money and actually my Amex kept going missing. <laughs> the real, the real, the real challenge was like people just couldn't do their job, yeah. right? People just couldn't do their job. So on one hand, we had no idea what software we had, so no, no people, no one knew the tools they had available to them, mm-hmm. um, and everyone uh, we had no control, so no governance. We we didn't have any way of controlling where we sent data, how, controlling budgets, how much we were spending, and finance, HR, and IT that had to do stuff every month by virtue of having software literally couldn't do the core functions of their job right and so there needed to be a way that you could bring all the software that you had into one place and drive those processes scalably because if you can't drive them scalably a your team's not going to have a great experience right they don't know what's there for them you're not going to get roi from your software and you're going to waste a ton of money what we've seen in our data is that companies because they don't have control of their software, just by coming to Clodara, are able to cut their software spend by somewhere between 20 and 30%.
3: Wow, wow, that's amazing. So, so, you know, you mentioned ARR, annual recurring revenues um, earlier, and you've talked about three levers of ARR, customer acquisition, retention, and expansion, and how retention and expansion It's how you sustain top line growth. We've talked about net dollar retention, CAC, CLV, churn, all these important measures that founders like yourself have to have clear visibility into and manage to have the success you've had at Cloudera. What advice do you have to other founders, CEOs? Like how, you know, obviously consolidation, visibility of software and the cost savings you just mentioned, that's, I don't see how you can grow without that type of discipline and rigor and process visibility. But is there advice you can give in terms of acquisition, retention, expansion, and the importance of these three elements in terms of growing ARR?
2: You know, in the in the end, you're a startup. There's no excuse. You have to grow fast, right? And you, thinking yeah. about how you do that, I think, as you say, there are three levers, right? Number one, you've got customers already. So the question is, how how can you get more more from them? And the way the things you need to do there are thinking about how you know how can you affect churn what are the most common reasons for churn how can you give a better experience how can you provide a better onboarding better training better support so that you keep the customers that you've worked so hard to get and spent so much money to acquire and then the second way to get more more things from customers is thinking about you know how can you how can you expand revenue with the customers you've already got selling to new customers is great, but are there new features? Are there upsells? Does your customer success team have quotas that they they really need to hit? And what can you do there to make your, your existing customers work harder for you and do more for you by bringing them more value? The second piece is really around customer acquisition, right? You've got to look at your channels, get it focus on on what's working and really double down on those things that are we had a, a real experience with this right so we had um we were growing really fast through outbound but also inbound and what we found there was that the outbound customers were bang on they were right on our target they were they were had high nps they were referring lots of their friends they were not raising support tickets it was great We had a lot of customers coming inbound too but they were not in our in our target um they were a lot of different people we went viral within a type of within a type of customer it was absolutely great in the short term it drove revenue massively but then it created all sorts of noise downstream product was getting lots of mixed messages from our customers support was getting tons of tickets and so really the other way to drive arr is really to focus on what's working double down on what is working and be brave and maybe consider stopping things that are not working. In the end, we changed the way we handle inbound and qualify much harder to make sure we were really driving uh, revenue from the right type of customers so we didn't cause problems further on in the business. And then the last thing to think about um, right now, right now, especially is about pricing. right? Um, Every SaaS company undervalues their their product and there's always opportunity to to increase. And particularly in moments right now in the UK, we were talking before the show, there was a 13 plus percent inflation print. You can increase your prices right now and just accelerate your growth. We increased prices in February. So for our cheapest plan, we actually increased the price by tenfold. And what we found after that, (laughs) yeah, it was big, right? We massively underpriced. Yeah. And what we found after doing that was, our sales cycles went down, our conversion rates went up in the funnel, and therefore we grew way, way faster by doing that. And so I wow. think you can learn a lot of unexpected things by by doing those three things. So getting more from your existing customers, doubling down on what's working in customer acquisition and cutting those things that aren't, and then visit, revisiting your pricing.
3: Brad, that's excellent advice. Excellent advice.
0: Terrific. Yeah. So that's amazing because what you do is you filtered out the customers that weren't really interested by getting the prices to the point and you showed sure that you actually had value at the same time which is a very hard thing to do so hey switching topics a little bit real quick what's the startup scene like in london these days compared to new york or miami or maybe denver
2: so it's a great question right so i think it depends very much on on what industry you're in um i think in the end every every B2B SaaS company that wants to get big still has to move, right? You still have to go to New York. You still have to go to the Bay Area from from Europe. Uh, and we see that, right? The European champions that have grown and enlisted on NASDAQ, they've done that. They've, the teams have, have moved across. And I think the big driver there remains um, not so much talent. There's a lot of really great people to hire these days. I think it's actually got to do with cost of capital. And the reason there is that, uh european venture is just so much more conservative and so you're going to be raising less money at lower valuations and if you're competing for the same prospect with a u.s SaaS company that's got a lower cost of capital and more capital right you're going to struggle think of it this way if your competition can bid more on that keyword on google search you're just not going to win it as often and so you do need to move across um, to to uh reduce your cost of capital and be competitive at scale
3: brad my final uh question to you again advice to founders like yourself uh how what what type of leadership traits do you need to exhibit and build upon to to grow a company but do it in an efficient lean and purposeful way
2: how do you, and, and I ask that
3: because you know Ray started the show saying 500,000 new jobs but there's still about 11 million open jobs in, at least in the US so to attract talent in your company right now that's got to be a founder's top priority and not only attract talent but keep your talent so what advice do you have and I know we could spend an hour on this question but what are two pieces of uh, nuggets of wisdom from you to to, to 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 other founders
2: wow I think so as a founder, I think there's three questions in there. So what do you need to do? And I, I think it's everything and it's always hard and it always changes and everything that you figure out, you get rewarded by um, being you know, t- having to take on harder challenges. I think in terms of efficiency, right? So you have to do more with, with less right now, maybe because capital is not available, maybe because talent is, is harder to hire. What I would say is there's two parts of driving efficiency that... I think I've learned so far at Clodara. So, number one is as a founder, you can't do everything. So, if you want to drive efficiency, the only way to do that is culture, right? You have to work with your team, help, you know, share why this is important. And in the end, culture is what happens when you're not in the room. And so, if you have that transparency, you have that trust, and you have that aligned vision, people will take efficient choices without you. And that's the only way you can scale. And the second thing, around efficiency that personally is against my dna and i've had to learn it is um someone told me that the the secret of being a founder is learning to say no 99 times out of 100 without causing any loss of enthusiasm either either in yourself or the person you're talking to right you need to focus you need to execute and you can't focus and execute on everything so you've got to really make sure especially in the early stages you drive towards the the right things
3: that's terrific advice and also very hard to do. Yep.
2: Yeah, absolutely. miserable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> wonderful advice. Thank you so much. This is amazing. Uh, we're getting some great things. We've got to send you back to your wonderful vacation and destination. We're here at Brad Van Leeuwen, co-founder and CEO of Cladera, Twitter at Brad, V A N L underscore. So thanks a lot for being on the show and happy, happy, happy Friday.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers.
3: Lots of great advice. Uh, being a founder is not easy work. Uh, and so that was, that was great advice. And saying no is super hard, uh, something I had to develop as well. Okay, our next guest, we have Jeff Lerner, Founder and Chief Vision Officer of Entry, uh, the world's fastest growing education startup. He's also author of a new book, uh, Unlock Your Potential. Uh, from broke jazz musician, to 50 million in online sales, Jeff's story and messages are inspiring millions today. After a decade of building multiple online businesses to over eight figures and twice landing on the Inc 5000 list, that's hard to do, Jeff turned his focus to educating and inspiring entrepreneurs about the power of digital business. In 2018, he found uh, Entre Institute where over 50 th- Ray, listen to this, 50,000 students, have discovered digital business that's awesome he's the author of a new book titled unlock your full potential your potential which we're going to talk about on this show he's now regarded as one of the most inspiring voices uh, online in business and uh, personal development you can follow jeff on twitter at the jeff learner t h e j e f f l e r
0: n e r welcome jeff to the Shrop tv
1: so glad to be here thanks for having me
0: Thank you, sir. We're excited to have you here. Thanks a lot for coming in. And congratulations. The book just came out August 2nd, which is amazing. So we've got you fresh here. Um, There was something interesting somewhere in a stat. I was reading that you said somewhere like most college graduates regret investing in their college degrees. Um, More than like seven out of 10 people are really upset of their jobs and they are looking at changing every 20 months. So something is huge here that's happening. Set the stage for why you wrote the book.
1: Yeah. So, and it's interesting too, I, you know, coming on. And by the way, I love the last guest I was, the whole time. I was like, I hope they don't call me out uh, in time. Cause I, I have a few notes. I need to take action on while I'm listening. Um, I was like shooting notes to my team about some stuff he was saying. So he was a great guest, but you know, conversations like that, let's be honest, like, like uh, I'll, I'll use a pun. They're kind of in the clouds, so to speak, <laughs> right? Like like the tech world and even the stock market to some, some degree, like most of what I think gets talked about in terms of economics and macroeconomics and progress and where we're at in the world, like it actually doesn't really mean that much to the average person, if we're being honest. You know, it's the Wall Street, Main Street gap, right? Like the reality is most people now today in the world you know i'm I, i'm fuzzy on the stats but i mean it's like 54% of people that graduated from college don't are, are not presently working in a in a job that required a college degree either they're no. unemployed or they're in a degree, or in a job that never even looked at the resume to see if they went to college which means over half of all the student the crippling amount of student debt in this country over half of it was completely unnecessary right and then you have you know, the average person changes jobs every 20 to 22 months. And you have, you know, the, the average 25-year-olds, over 50% of 25-year-olds live at home with their parents. You, I mean, there's, there's so many statistics. We, we could be here for an hour and I could just rattle off statistics about basically how fractured the American dream is, how disenfranchised and, and hollow the middle-class promise is right now today in the world. And I don't care what the stock market is doing. Um, I don't care what the Bureau of Labor Statistics tells us the data says. The reality is most people in the world are scared, they're struggling, and I think most significantly, they're getting this dawning sense that they were misled. Because everything that we've built our entire culture on professionally in this this country and, and really the entire westernized world is based around this like, I'm going to work for decades and at the end of this journey, this sojourn, this struggle, there's going to be this payoff. There's going to be this retirement, which we can go into the history of the retirement concept and how it was invented by Otto von Bismarck in the Prussian Empire as a way to basically get old people out of the workforce so that they could put the young people to work and thwart a a rebellion. They were concerned that the French Revolution was going to spill over to Germany. And so then when we hired you know, uh, Paul Warburg to build the American capitalist system in the early 20th century, we imported all this stuff from Prussia, right? That's how we ended up with the Federal Reserve. That's how we ended up with our banking system. And that's how we ended up with the idea of retirement. And that's fine if it happens. But 91%, I think it's 91% now of people over the age of 60 have less than 10% of what they would actually need to retire comfortably in the modern world. Think about that number. Over 90% have less than 10%. As soon as retirement becomes a broken promise, the entire American dream becomes a broken promise. And you have tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people going, why the heck am I doing all this? It doesn't lead anywhere. That's why I wrote the book. That's amazing. That's
3: amazing. When did you realize that there was a disconnect in terms of our perception of the impact of our education, our employment, societal government services. I mean, you're a $100 million entrepreneur. So clearly, you were able to be in that incredibly small percentage of people that regardless of their environment, regardless of their conditions, you were able to f- plow your way through and achieve success. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you decided that you're going to turn your, 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 your purpose into helping others do that. Was there a inflection point? Was there a point in your life where you said, I need to share my lessons learned because sadly most people are gonna be disenfranchised in terms of the perception they have of living a successful life?
1: Yeah, it, there was. And in six weeks, it will be four years ago. I'm, I'm coming up on the four year anniversary, which was the third week of September, 2018, is when I had this epiphany uh, and I can, I can back up a little bit to how I got there, but I had this epiphany that was like, you know, this is what I have to do. This is what I want to do. And I was 39 years old and I was flirting with retiring. I had just sold a business. It wasn't like, I mean, look, Vala, you work at Salesforce, right? Like your, your economics and my economics have different numbers of zeros to them, but that's okay. Cause I'm just one guy, Right. You know, I sold a business for a couple million bucks. I had already done well before that. I was like, "I'm 39. I, I just, I, I just had a, a baby girl, my fourth kid. You know, maybe oh. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna fish and hang out at home with my kids, right?" Awesome. And then I was like, "That sounds like a slippery, slippery slope to irrelevance and an untimely death. Maybe I should do something that ma- that matters to more than just my four kids and my wife." Maybe you're and, never- uh, That was when I I turned around and I and I looked at my life and I said, "Okay." In 10 years, I went from being a truly broke, half a million dollar in debt, flirting with bankruptcy, living, evicted from my apartment. And this, is this, you know, forgive me, this sounds like one of those rags to riches internet headlines because it is, only it's also true. Um, you know, living at my ex, soon to be ex-wife's parents' house because I'd been evicted from my apartment. That was my life at 29 years old. Wow. At 39 years old, I was a multimillionaire, basically going. Maybe I should retire, right? How? And by the way, uh, you talked, you asked about inflection points. The previous inflection point. I mean, there's been a few, but if I roll all the way back to 16, I'm also a high school dropout. So how did all that happen, right? And I thought, okay, if all the good little boys and girls of the world that went to college racked up the debt, were, are working the 40 by the 40-40 plan, 40 hours a week for 40 years thinking that they're on a yellow brick road that leads somewhere that they're at various points in time, they're going to figure out, wait, this isn't really going the way I was told. And then you've got, you know, the high school dropout jazz musician, bohemian derelict degenerate guy who's happily retired at 39 years old. How come my life worked out so well? And most people's aren't, maybe that's a story I should tell. And I started talking about it on the internet and it blew up. It, it, it went viral, you know, within, Within 10 months, I was smart enough to you know, install a Facebook pixel and track my audience growth and everything. And within 10 months, I had 2 million people wow. that had watched my videos where I was basically saying, let's talk about a different way to play this game. Let's talk about how I played this game and how I ultimately was able to win this game. And that's when I knew that there was an opportunity to start something a little more formally. And I'll also share with you guys because you guys are you know, enterprise scaling guys that I did it as an experiment and also as a as a case in point to prove my premise that there are still wonderful opportunities for call it the average person. Um, I started my platform Entra on a twenty thousand dollar credit card. I had a I mean obviously I had more money than that but I said I'm going to give myself a twenty thousand dollar constraint. Wow. to prove that you can launch a multimillion dollar business with 20 grand. And, you know, we're, you know, we've, we've done well over a hundred million dollars in revenue in the last three years on a $20,000 credit card, because, the, because there, you know, there's a lot of great stuff you can do out there. They just don't teach it to you in college.
0: There's a lot of that. And that's a good point. So how do we find our purpose? I mean, that's, everyone's asking this question, right? How do we find it? Why is it so challenging? How did you get to your purpose?
1: yeah well i i was a jazz musician for a decade and then i was an i was a you know self absorbed woe is me entrepreneur for a decade and and I did okay at that but I never found my purpose in either of those things and and I think you find your purpose you stop looking inside yourself like everybody like we live in a world that's so obsessed with self actualization which is cool and self expression which is cool but there's nothing to express if there's no one to connect it to. And I think that, you know, it's a cliche, but I have become a deep believer, not, not, not in the abstract, not in the philosophical sense, but through actual life experience that, you know, you don't really start finding meaning in the things that you do until you're making a positive contribution to someone other than yourself. And by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that's maybe a little bit harsh and off-putting to some people taking care of your family, doing it for your family is not enough to constitute purpose because there have been plenty of atrocities committed in human history in the name of the tribe or the clan or the bloodline or the family. Like it's, it's when do you actually say, okay, there's gotta be more to this life than just not dying as long as possible and making sure my kids don't die either. There's gotta be more. And when you finally cross that chasm and, and stop resisting it because it feels like an obligation, then you find your purpose. Wow. Well, sorry. Okay. We,
3: we, so 29, really, really challenged, uh, lost, poor, uh, and, and looking to have meaningful impact in, in life, society, family. 39, thinking about retiring as a multimillionaire. Let's fast forward to 49. Okay. 50, 59. Let's go 20 years. Four kids. Maybe more by then. What do you, how do you want your kids to describe dad, Jeff? What are they going to say about the dad 20 years from now?
1: I appreciate that question. What a great question. Um, I think
3: I'm searching. I have three kids. Yeah. There's three multimillionaires talking right now. And I know how deeply Ray cares about his kids. Uh, I think that's probably the most common thing Ray and I have is when we talk to each other and it's not business related, we're just bragging about our kids. His son's at Duke. My daughter's at Bentley. We're talking about, you know, how much right. they know more than we do. So most of our conversations outside of business is all about our kids. So, you know, I, I know there's some gravitational pull that's driving both of us, and that pull is. Uh, and I'm not trying to contradict what you just said because I agree. It's got to be beyond just your family. Uh, you know, your 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 purpose, but. I, I sure hope my kids describe me in a, in a in a loving way uh, 10 20 years from now uh, you know I'm driven by that
1: yeah yeah of course yeah I mean but, but the, by no means am I suggesting we neglect our families my yeah, goodness of course, they, of course. <laughs> they can be they can be the foremost priority mm-hmm. on a meaningful list of priorities right I'm just mm-hmm. suggesting they pro- you know there's more to life than having just them you know, How dominate that list. And so I, I think that what I long for most from my children is, is simply two things. One is, I'll call it the micro and the macro. At the micro level, it's just that they felt love from me. Not that they heard it, not that there was some construct oh, that implied it, but that they felt it in I, my I presence love consistently. That. And then the second thing is that I walked my talk. You know, that I talk to them about how, look, it's like money is a a thing. It's a big thing, but it's not the only thing. Make You know, I talk this talk about there is more to life than just family. And frankly, our family needs to stand for something greater than just our family and the impact that we're having in the world. And by the way, hard work. And by the way, all this stuff going on in the world that requires you to raise your standards and elevate to a higher level than maybe at any time in human history before because it's getting so dang crowded and, you know, maybe this and maybe that. And that I didn't just say all this stuff, but that they go, you know what? He wouldn't even need needed to say any of that because we heard it all just in the way that he lived and what we saw every day. That's what I would want them to say. I love that. Your last
3: name speaks to your mantra. I'm just thinking you are a learner. um, And it sounds like you want your kids to be carrying that name in in their actions as well. Learners. I love that. very much. Uh, Yeah, that's great.
0: Yeah, let's start there too. I mean, doing work and creating value. So there's a big difference. I was reading the book. You said, what's the difference and how can we create value in the modern world? I think we're touching a little bit on that. Let's go a little bit deeper. What what is that value? Well,
1: I would say work is in the eye of the beheld and value is in the eye of the beholder. Um, (laughs) I can work really hard and not be doing much for anyone. You know, I might burn a lot of calories, but that doesn't mean you owe me money. Value is, 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 you know, it's simply, a, it's the great democratic measure of the work that I do. And I am the only person that doesn't get a vote. <laughs> what does is, what is everyone else evaluate your work to have been worth in terms of the impact you made, the problems you solved, the progress you drove, the, you know, quality of life that, that you enhanced for the people around you. And, and I think it's just two sides of the same coin. Work is how I experience it value is how other people experience it. And I think that we have a tendency sometimes, and I have fallen prey to this many times over many years to think that because we're working hard in our personal opinion, therefore we're entitled to anything. And, Mm -hmm. and there's that saying, nobody cares, work harder. I would actually scrap that and say, nobody cares. Start measuring yourself by value because hard work isn't the answer. Doesn't mean it might not be part of creating value, but it's not how it's measured.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And there are no shortcuts to, Achieving meaningful, great work and, and creating value, no shortcuts. Um, I think it was Paula Cola who said, you know, straight lines don't make great drivers. Uh, so, so, it, so given there are no shortcuts, I, I, but I'm going to ask the question, can you give us a shortcut? <laughs> what can people do right now to, put, you know, I think it was Bobby Knight who said, put yourself in a position to be in position to score. So what can people do right now to put themselves in the right position so when there are opportunities there, uh, perhaps they're not, you know, they're knocking on its door. What can they do to to stay motivated? Uh, Because I do think there's an element of being self-motivated. You couldn't have gone from 29 broke to 39 multimillionaire without self-motivation, grit, persistence, optimism, and hard work. Uh, and luck and luck. I totally, you know, people who don't believe in luck, they don't, you know, I don't understand that. But but uh, but can you give us a, a shortcut or, or at least a little formula, a recipe yeah. that we can start using right away?
1: Yeah, I, I can. And and I, I don't at all mind your reference to luck. I, I don't remember who said it, but luck is when opportunity meets preparation. Right. 100%. 100%. Uh, you don't control the opportunity, but you certainly control the preparation. And, the, and, you know, I like the Navy SEAL saying, like, by the time it's time to be ready, it's too late to get ready. So get ready now.
3: Wow, um, that, that is great. I hadn't heard that
1: before. That is great. Yeah, that's a that's a tweet. I'm going to be rewatching this segment. <laughs> this is great. Yeah, the the seal the seals got some good stuff. Look, if you raise the stakes high enough, yeah, yeah. really figure out how, what works, right? And when life or death is the is the the consequence, the seals have figured out some winning formulas. But okay. yeah, so there's a formula. There's actually a chapter. It's probably going to be the least read chapter in the book because it's the last chapter in the book, and you know the tapering effect right we all know it's like like books create their own churn right chapter by chapter right <laughs> and so uh, the last chapter but i'll tell you it's it, i think it's one of the the best things i've ever stumbled upon and it's called the modern world value formula and it basically tries to create an algebraic equation to explain to people and again this book is not written for and i'm not i'm not opposed if somebody in silicon valley wants to read my book that's amazing but that's not who the book is designed to help right mm-hmm. This book is designed to help this person that is, is waking up. And, and frankly, this, this craziness that's happened in the last two years has dramatically accelerated and exposed a lot of the fundamental you know, trends and, and principles and really tectonic currents in the, in the world, right? And so people are seeing this and they're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. That's who the book is written for. And in the, in the last chapter, I try to explain to a person this is whatever you've been paid up to this point, and whatever you will be paid moving forward. This is an equation for you to understand it, right? Because people are—how often do we hear people sort of, you know, bemoaning that they're under—they're underappreciated in the world, or they're undervalued, right? I work so hard, and I don't get my just due. Yeah, but let me tell you why the world values you the way it does. And it's a—it's got four parts, right? There's your skills. Actually, let me do it in order. There's the industry that you work in. Mm-hmm. The skills that you bring into that work, there's your character, your actual, call it intangible ethic. And then you add those together and you multiply at times. How do you get paid? Which is essentially a where there's there's three different ways you can get paid in this world. You can work for someone else, uh, like as an employee, you can get a paycheck, or you can be a freelancer, which is kind of like owning your own business, but without so much risk or reward, or you can go whole hog. I'm going to incorporate, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to have payroll. I'm going to, you know, and those are the three sort of multipliers, um, call them the three exponents, right? But it's your skills. It's the industry in which you apply those skills. And it's the, the, the character, the kind of the, the seven habits type of ethos that you bring to it. Right. And so if somebody's like, Hey, how do I get ready? Like you said, how do I put myself in a position to put myself in a position? You got to look at the industry you're working in. And I don't, you know, you can have the, you can be the greatest, uh, you can be like a quantitative genius who's the greatest accountant in the world, right? right? But if you apply those skills in the in the in the breakfast cereal industry, <laughs> compared to applying them with a hedge fund, yeah. <laughs> you're just not going to make the same money, right? Great. So choice of industry, but then also the skills themselves, right? Like if you're if you're the greatest. Uh, asphalt paver on earth. You are not going to make the same amount as the greatest heart surgeon on earth because there's a different demand set. There's, and there's, you know, I explain, I unpack what determines the value itself of a, of a raw skill. Right. And then finally your character, which is, is actually the slow compounding game over time. As you become known and Stephen Covey, I mentioned seven habits. He wrote a lot about this. He wrote about how around the middle of the 20th century early to mid 20th century we actually flipped in society from what he called a character ethic to a personality ethic right mm-hmm. now it's all about how well do you interview and how charismatic are you and how you know what's your mojo and vibe and it's like back in the day there was a time when it was just like well does he say what he say? does he does he do what he said he was going to do yeah
3: yeah yeah
1: and if he doesn't, if he can't meet a deadline, does he give me a heads up that the deadline's gonna change? Like it was just like old school values, right? And that's a, people don't talk about it as much cause it's not sexy, yeah. but it's every bit as real. It is baked into every person's estimation of value by other people, right? So yeah. if you wanna get ready to get ready and get ready to crush it in this world and get ready to get lucky when opportunity presents, develop the right skills, apply them in the right industry, develop the right character, and then decide what multiplier you wanna to apply to that by the level of risk that you're willing to take of being an employee, a freelancer, or a business owner.
3: Jeff, I think plenty of people in Silicon Valley can learn from you and your book, plenty. No, oh, well, plenty. thank you, thank so, you. So well, that's a great formula, and I agree 100% with your thesis, great. I
0: agree, and those character ethics from Cove, Covey, fairness, integrity, honesty, and truthfulness, I think were the four yeah. ones that he talked about. And uh, I'll take reliable
3: over charming any day. Amen.
1: And I'll be honest, you know, we've grown, we've grown from a merry band of a few of us to, you know, we have, I think our Slack workspace now has 240 something people in it in like a little over three years. Right. So that's for a bootstrap company. That's pretty major hyper growth. And so we've done a lot of hiring Mm -hmm. and we've had a lot of interviews and I have learned that there's a diminishing return on charisma that starts the day you hire someone. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it, I mean, it, it might be a nice-to-have, but it's yeah, yeah.
0: overrated. We're here, we're here Jeff lerner Officer, of Andre, importantly, a life to coach, the world's fastest-fast education just on 2nd Thank you so much for being here, being Thank you, Jeff. Lerner, lerner. Thank you,
3: Jeff. Thank happy, you right you got something going on with your mic uh, 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 I'm hearing a little bit of static okay that was uh, two too terrific an incredibly successful founder on a rocket with Cladora and and, and obviously Jeff a hundred million dollar business uh, and I'm glad five six years ago he didn't decide to retire on a beach with his family and he's doing important work uh, important work um so speaking of important work i just read a long form article that you wrote uh and i wanted to talk to you about it i i I talked to you before the show and i said this 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 article you wrote is something that our audience would benefit from and it's not the the article was not all big tech companies are equally created and you talked about uh, matana your your acronym for the these largest companies in the world and you can you can talk about it. Microsoft, Apple, Tesla, Alphabet, Nvidia, and Amazon. Uh, it's good to see Nvidia up there. Uh, and, uh, and, and can you talk a little bit about this thesis that not all big tech companies are, are created equal and we'll try to unpack your article in the next 15 minutes.
0: Yeah, no problem, right? We're seeing a ton of uh, comments about big tech. Is big tech okay? Is big tech back? Are we down? Are tech companies down for the count? But what we just saw in the last quarter, I mean, you know, as everyone hinted, I mean, massive returns, right? The cloud companies were delivering 47%, 46%, 33%, you know, growth, right? And and these are the big cloud companies. Uh, You saw like enterprise tech companies, right? They all hit their numbers. Like, you know, we were just commenting on, you know, Atlassian, you know, blowing their numbers off the table, right, We're seeing like almost every tech company, cybersecurity companies and software is doing amazing. And so, you know, when people think tech, sometimes they think about the social media companies. Sometimes they think about you know, the consumer tech companies, which weren't doing necessarily as good. Right. And so it's important to look at tech through the different lenses of do, you know, do they have the right characteristics. Uh, the Metana reference is a little bit different. Uh, we are no longer in the world of fangs. Uh, Facebook and Netflix are one trick ponies in the digital monetization space, and they're not doing as well. You know, you need more than one revenue source, it's ads, it's goods, it's search, it's services, it's memberships, it's subscriptions. A one trick pony doesn't work anymore.
3: Yeah, so in this, again, uh, robust article, you actually talked about five trends emerging from the quarter's tech earnings. And you said not all digital advertising are equal, are created equal. Uh, You talked about enterprise cloud growth Continues to surprise many. Uh, you know, you talked about like Google Cloud revenue grew by 47 percent, uh, Amazon grew by 33 percent. These are these are giant companies at incredible growth rates. You talked about successful digital giants build multi-sided platform businesses with data-driven digital networks (DDDNs). You've been talking about DDDNs. In fact, in your book, you had a chapter devoted to this. You talked about one trick ponies do not fare well in a recession, and you used the R word. (laughs) And and, uh, you said enterprise tech companies remain undervalued. Let's take these DDDN concepts. And in your article, you said, for example, Apple added 160 million paid subscribers in the last quarter, bringing its total to 860 million paid subscribers for services. And that services grew at 12% to almost 20 billion, 19.6. Talk to us about the importance of DDD net ends and how your digital duopolies and digital giants really will rely on this construct to compete and grow and dominate markets.
0: Yeah, one of the things that people don't understand, it's, you know, a hardware company sells devices and we all look at Apple and we count iPhones that are sold and we're like, oh wow, 1.2 billion iPhones, right? You know, whether you're Samsung or Apple, or if you're any hardware company, it's number of units, right? You could be Sony, number of PlayStation consoles, right? So all those things kind of play a role. But what really matters is not are you just not only just selling something you're also building a data network you're building the information and insights And what Apple's been able to do through the app store over time through their services now through subscriptions, through Apple TV, through identity through payments is basically take the install base and continue to layer on services So it's not just the fact that they've got X number of devices it's people are really engaged using those devices the number of apps on their phone, the amount of time that they spend on their devices. Their devices are serving as, like, this is a remote control for a lot of things in my house, anywhere from home automation to the TV, right, to being able to check into a bank statement. And that's really where we're seeing these networks formed. And the information and insights there, Apple's been probably one of the tops in terms of privacy, right, is being used to help them figure out where the next set of demand is. What are people buying? Where are they using stuff, right? What would actually help people save time? Or does automation make sense, right? And those networks become important because every company is trying to build a business graph on the back end to understand intent, and over time, that intent can be used for good. It can be used for evil, pro- improperly applied, right? But can be used for good to help people find new services, find new offerings, save time, save money, right? You can put that in that kind of perspective.
3: In the article, you, you referenced Amazon grew their digital advertising to almost $9 billion. And you made a reference that search-based and commerce-based digital advertising appears to be recession-proof. Is the benefit of being a data-driven company where you build your anticipatory muscle, understanding intent, uh, uh, is this an example of the power of, of DDDNs?
0: Yeah, it's a great example of that. I mean, if you think about advertising, if you look five years back, Amazon wasn't even on the radar, right? Um, it was less, barely less than a billion dollars. in Facebook, ads Google. Facebook, Google, 98%. Exactly. And, and, you know, Google was double the size of Facebook and the next competitor was barely a billion dollars out of the blue Amazon with their data infrastructure, right? Suddenly they're doing search based commerce ads, right? You look for this product, something shows up, right? You actually put placement against the product, right? And so what's really going on is, you know, they've been able to take a business from nowhere to almost 31 billion last year, right? They're like the third largest ad player. Now, what's more interesting, as people who've read the book may have noticed, is that you've got three dominant business models all competing for the same monetization model. So Google on search, Facebook and Meta on search and social and, of course, Amazon on commerce. Right. They look like monopolies on their own by business model, but they're diversifying in terms of how they monetize.
3: You ended the article by by educating the readers in terms of how you could help. Uh, your company and your top experts that are part of the constellation team and you listed some things and one of them stood out for me and it was the first one you talked about developing a metaverse digital business strategy connecting with other pioneers sharing best practices helping with vendor selection helping with partner selection when you're trying to implement new technology providing contract negotiation and software licensing and just demystifying the whole software licensing process model and but the first one stood out with me because you talked about developing a metaverse strategy and it doesn't surprise me because you've been consistently ranked your company as one of the top silicon valley advisory firms in the world are you finding that business leaders have metaverse strategy at the top of their list to a point where you actually listed it as number one uh talk to us about your, your your view of metaverse strategy and is this what are we talking about here is this multi-billion multi-trillion what are we talking about here when you talk about metaverse
0: well we actually think that the metaverse is somewhere between anywhere from 18 to 20.7 trillion dollars and a market cap by 2030. these are this big is numbers.
3: U.S. GDP number you're talking about
0: this is just the market cap for the metaverse markets. If you, you think know, about 19
3: trillion is like U.S. GDP, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know, it's in that neighborhood. Yeah,
0: yeah every, everybody is basically going to have some part or some place in their metaverse. Just like when we looked at internet market sizing in the 1990s. So that's wow. kind of where we are. Um, we've done something like 50 metaverse engagements with executives trying to understand where their strategy is gonna go. For some, it's really about an extension of the brand. For others, it's a brand new role for monetization and models. For other folks, it's really about new ways to do work and digital twins and environments. And so we came up with 43 use cases on the metaverse. 43 use cases. Terms. Yeah. 22 in the world of future of work and employee engagement, anything from training to no bias recruiting to you know how you actually do scenarios uh, for interviewing and recruiting to digital twins, right? And then 21 in the customer experience and uh, you know commerce side, which anything from new types of ads to selling to marketing to events uh, to service. Uh, so they're all popping up, and the real question is like, how do we actually get prepared for it? And then what that future looks like. But here's breaking news actually. One of the interesting things is we've been imagining what the future of commerce looks like. And you've heard me talk about ambient experiences in the past, but take ambient experiences to the next level. And there's a concept that we talk about dynamic scene generation, because in the metaverse your next best action is a full immersive experience. So imagine instead of like we're moving APIs and we're headless and we've got these journeys These scenes and scenarios are dynamically delivered, right? Based on your intention, based on the context and relevancy. And we actually think that future CX is going to sit in dynamic scene generation, whether it's a 2D scene or a contact center script or a full metaverse experience. We think the ability to bring analytics, automation, and AI together is to deliver that next best action, which is that dynamic scene generation.
3: When are we going to see a DSG article from you?
0: (laughs) That's coming. This uh, sounds
3: like a break. This sounds like a market uh, a breaking news and a whole market segment or capabilities that companies can you guess which industry that I'm currently working with that is the most complex metaverse digital twin project that I'm personally a part of? Which industry? Or maybe I'll turn around. Which I don't industry? know, is
0: it healthcare? Is it public sector? Telco telco wow there you go what are you doing what's happening on the telco side
3: oh i got it that's i'm not ready for that breaking news uh but i can (laughs) tell you i'm working with a team of architects uh distinguished solutions engineers designers a couple of companies in the salesforce ventures ecosystem so startups we're investing in and we're building uh, an incredible metaverse experience for a Telco client um and it's it's pretty awesome it's it's uh It's pretty awesome. Uh, And it's going to serve as an ecosystem accelerator because in this metaverse, there are other companies that are participating uh, to deliver value across a broad set of technologies and capabilities. And so just being immersed in this environment uh, that's more frictionless and easily adaptable to the needs of of an end user, we're able to uh, orchestrate. It's even it's even better than orchestrate. We're able to choreograph how multiple companies can work together to deliver value uh, with an elasticity that's far greater than any one company's ability to deliver value. So it's really becoming an ecosystem accelerator. As and it, that wasn't the intention when we were building it. We realized, wow, by plugging and playing these companies, when they, when they're ready to get on the stage and dance. We've choreographed something that's uh, really, really powerful. Anyway, anyway, anyway. I love
0: uh, it. from orchestration to choreography, we're definitely seeing that as yeah. an Piece. Um, it's interesting when you bring a marketplace of different business services, that ecosystem gets very e- interesting, right? Because yeah. you can actually see the demand signals yeah. and see which, when everyone makes a choice, like yeah. what's actually more popular, those intense signals yeah. actually come into place. Uh, yeah. And it, it's fun, right? I it mean, is and-
3: fun. it is fun. But w- when you realize that the true orchestrator is the buyer, the customer, yes. And that if there's five, six, seven, eight, ten vendors that are trying to deliver a solution, no, no one of the vendors is going to have the power to orchestrate all. So you have to focus your energy. And when the customer plays a tune, all the dancers need to be at the right place at the right time with the right movement. And so to create that choreography, you got to lean into technology uh, a bit. And and I think the power of the metaverse where it is is that you can help companies graduate to choreography, not just what we've been doing for years and that's relying on a principal actor orchestrating. So anyway, anyway, that's it. this is a whole show we can talk about. but uh, I, I, appreciate, I, appreciate, I appreciate I appreciate you going over the article because it was a great read based on really qualitative quantitative analysis of the earnings of giant technology companies. And as I read the article, I realized like there's a lot of wisdom in this post that people might miss. So you being able to share your thoughts with us, it actually cleared some thoughts that I had as well. So we might make this a regular thing. You write posts and we kind of dissect it here <laughs> because <laughs> uh, my friend, you're kind of miles ahead of most people, at least me. So I need an explanation segment. <laughs> we <Well>, flip <laughs> so- we'll it around
0: when we talk about blockchain and crypto, because I know how deep you've gotten in that space. And uh, you're, you're definitely one of the folks that are seeing it and calling it. So Let's wait
3: until wrapped. the price bounces before, because then I can have a little bit of braggadocious. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to come back. It's yeah, come yeah. back. I come sure. back. So. I, I hope, hope so. Then maybe me, you, and Jeff will all retire on a beach. Okay, anyway, um, that, I appreciate that. Okay, uh, next week is episode 289. By the way, we're only 10 guests away from 900 interviews.
0: Wow, there we uh, go.
3: in the history of our show. We have Jeff Tarr, CEO of Skillsoft. We have Byron Reese, who's Ooh, one yeah. of my favorite guests of all time, CEO of JJ Kent and author of Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think. Byron takes us on a journey. I could talk to Brian for an entire hour segment. He's—he Please be there next week. And then Toraj Paran, author of Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Endgame. So again, two billion authors and an incredible CEO next week. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you next Friday. Bye, everyone. everyone.